Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's leading Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 7th of June 2017, and this day marks the centenary of the start of the Battle of Messines. To mark the centenary, this podcast brings you a lecture given by Dr Tim Bowman from the University of Kent. Tim was giving a guest lecture at the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland in Belfast. His talk is titled The Myths of the Irish at Messines. Okay, great. Well, thanks for that uh, warm welcome, Stephen. It's a great pleasure to be back at the Public Record Office with uh, a number of old friends and familiar faces. I'm feeling a little like President Trump at the minute here because I have a whole battery of microphones in front of me. So it seems that one way or another, if there's anything you want to listen uh, back on, uh, you're going to have the the ability to do that. Um, My own plug for another talk is tomorrow I'm speaking at the Ulster Museum at one o'clock with a more general talk on the Battle of Messines. Uh, they asked me first and then Prony asked me could I do something so I thought that I'd look at the myths today so I'm not going to say an awful lot about the operations uh, piece by piece more appropriate that's done on the actual centenary uh, tomorrow perhaps so there's really thinking about this sort of four myths that I thought that I could explore today and would last uh, time for some discussion and questions uh, about them I hope you, you find it of some interest the first one that I think we can look at seriously is what I've called by shorthand here the Irish Parliamentary Party myth and this was an idea put together by many uh, constitutional nationalists and Willie Redmond is a name that will be familiar to many of you. Um, and the idea that a lot of the Irish Parliamentary Party nationalist MPs had was that shared service by Ulster Unionists and Irish nationalists in the trenches in France and Belgium would then lead to a better awareness of each other's your views on the Home Rule crisis and would then mean that Home Rule could be introduced for uh, the island of Ireland as a whole at the end of the war, that this would break down all the barriers. That's something that um, Willie Redmond talks about quite a lot in various speeches. He writes about it in the Daily Chronicle and on his death, the journalism that he puts together in the Chronicle is collected together in that book, Trench Pictures from uh, France. My copy I luckily picked up in a second-hand bookshop in Belfast for uh, six quid because the guy selling it didn't realise Redmond had anything to do with Ireland and had it in the general military history section. That tells us something which is quite interesting too about uh, the Battle of Messine um, and the audience today. I mean, we could say perhaps half 12 uh, in the day is a time that only really suits you know, the pensioners, the long-term unemployed, the criminally insane, Belfast City Council staff, prony staff and academics. But um, you know, this is another aspect, I think, that the Battle of Messine hasn't got the popular attention the Battle of the Somme has. You know, when we were doing the Somme talks last year, uh, we were getting crowds of 50. And, well, maybe since they'd heard it, uh, they thought they didn't want to hear anything more. But there is some Something too about sort of Messine and the Somme and how this all works out. So the sort of unionist myth uh, about the Battle of the Somme, the idea that it's only the Ulster Division taking part, that you know, is, is a very old Tory myth that's been exploded many times, doesn't really come up so much to do with the Battle of the Messine. So it's more this one about the Irish Parliamentary Party uh, that I'll look, look at. So I'll, I'll say more about this shortly. We then move on to what I've termed the uh, peace process myth. Um, and there's the Irish Isle of Ireland Peace Tarp Messina. I don't know how many of you have, have been there, Messina or Messon. Um, and this, I think, in some ways rather unwittingly, simply repeats the IPP line. It's something along the lines of, well, if nationalists and unionists could get on together in the trenches in Belgium, why why can't we get on better now? So this is, this is unveiled in 1998 and pushes uh, that argument. It's quite an odd enterprise, I think. Um, I'll say a lot more about it later. Um, you don't get a nice cup of tea there as you did at the Ulster Tower. There's no knowledgeable uh, caretaker or curator to bring you around the place. Yes, I'm aware of whom audience is here today. Um, so there's a sort of problem there and, and what's it there for? But uh, also it's a strange attempt, I think, by the Irish government to reach out to loyalist paramilitaries. So it's quite an odd sort of peace building endeavour in that way. And I think the timing of it didn't quite work uh, for various reasons. So I'll, I'll come back to that uh, later on. 
So they're the sort of two um, big Irish myths we can think of, the IPP myth that's contemporary, peace process myth that's coming in the 1990s. We can then think more broadly about the sort of performance of the British Army and apologies if Tom has covered a bit of this last week with you already. Um, there is what we could call the British military incompetence myth. The idea extolled so well in uh, the TV series Black Adder um, that really the British Army just keeps making the same mistakes over and over and over again and that Messina is really a bit like the Somme and very much like Passchendaele and it's just another bloodbath. Uh, so that's one myth we can look at. Now to counter that there's another one that comes in more recently which um, those of us in the University of Kent uh, talk about as being linked to the West Midlands axis which is of course the universities of Birmingham and Wolverhampton led by Gary Sheffield where they talk about this idea of a learning curve and suggest that things are getting consistently better for the British Army over time. I think that's also a myth. Um, again I'll look at all these in more detail but Cyril Falls when he was writing about the Ulster Division said that the operation at Messine was essentially as good as it got for the division. It wasn't that you know, things then got better for Passchendaele, got better for 1918, that the sort of peak of any learning process for the Ulster Division was seen in June 1917. So both of those ideas about the performance of the British Army are also ones that we should uh, think about seriously there. So I'll turn obviously, you know, all myths have a kernel of truth to them. Uh, which is why they get told and retold. Um, but there are a number of problems with these, which I'll uh, look at now. So, sort of, we take the first two together this idea of the Irish Parliamentary Party, uh, that this would bring Irishmen together and let Home Rule come in, and the later idea of the peace process myth. What lies behind this is the supposed equivalence of the 16th Irish Division and the 36th Ulster Division. The idea being that the 16th Irish Division was basically Irish nationalism in arms and that the 36th Ulster Division was basically Ulster Unionism in arms. There are great problems with that. There is certainly a lot of political engagement with recruiting in Ireland, um, but it doesn't work out terribly happily. Um, particularly for Irish nationalism. So we have here a very famous uh, poster here of John Redmond. Uh, the quote's actually from August 1915, so the ship is rather sealed uh, by the time this one is released, if we think of the spikes of uh, recruiting in the First World War. In Ireland, as in elsewhere in Britain, the real peak comes in the first uh, six months, really, of the war, that the highest recruiting point for Ireland as for... GB is in mid-September 1914, so the fact that the Redmond poster is coming out so much later than that tells you something about the hesitancy of Irish nationalism to uh, get involved in the war. Um, it's fair to say, I think, that um, John Redmond has been pretty well treated by modern historians writing about the Home Rule crisis and about the First World War, much better treated than he was by a contemporary artist. Um, you know, I've looked at this poster, I, I don't know how many times, I still can't work out where that arm's meant to be coming from or who it belongs to. Um, it's certainly an odd one. And you had the terribly unmilitary figure of John Redmond and the Kitchener pose as a, as a very odd uh, thing <coughs> to do as well. Um, so we have attempts by the Irish nationalists to raise uh, recruits. And if we, we sort of think about the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Division briefly, when Edward Carson decides to raise the Ulster Volunteer Force, the decision is made that there will be mass recruiting meetings in Belfast. So you have uh, parades and enrolment meetings for each of the four north, south, east and west uh, Belfast regiments of the UVF, you then have special meetings for the Young Citizen Volunteers to enlist. So that's all very carefully planned, carefully choreographed, and means that the UVF essentially recruits a brigade for the Kitchener's Army within a couple of weeks in mid-September 1914. In rural areas it takes longer, but there are about 30 recruiting meetings through provincial Ulster and in uh, Derry City uh, for the, the Ulster Division, and by the end of October, you're looking at something like 10,000 men raised. So it takes a long time to form the Ulster Division up to its full strength of 15,000. That takes us on into the spring of 1915. But in the early days, there is enthusiasm and Ulster Unionism uh, can deliver in quite widespread numbers. For Irish nationalists, the recruiting gig is a much more difficult one. And it says a lot that there's only these formed recruiting meetings in West Belfast, in Derry City and in Enniskillen 
Uh, so that, that's in sharp contrast to what goes on for the Ulster Volunteer Force. And you get a flavour of what the problems are with all this with this recruiting poster which is based on a speech uh, by Joseph Devlin the MP for West Belfast you can see here that Devlin manages that very uh, elaborate trick of encouraging men to enlist in the Irish regiments of the British Army without ever once mentioning the Irish regiments or the British Army. So men are asked to join the Irish Brigade, so resonances of the old Irish Brigade and the French Army and they're asked to be soldiers of the Allies and that sort of shows you some of the problems uh, within all this. Because, of course, Irish nationalists had opposed uh, British involvement in the South African War. So there was a, a sort of long-standing uh, problem there. There had been a lot of campaigns, more by advanced nationalists than by the Irish Parliamentary Party itself, against recruiting in peacetime between 1902 and 1914. So this sort of reverses the, the position of Irish nationalism to some degree, and that remains very problematic. It remains problematic for any number of reasons. Um, I'll touch on a few of them. One is really that uh, you've got the Irish National Volunteers that are about 180,000 strong. There are a lot of concerns in the press in Ireland that these men are going to be conscripted. There's an idea that the British government is going to bring in the Militia Act and that they are going to be conscripted into the army. So that causes a lot of hesitancy and a dropping away in volunteer parades and so on. It takes a long time too uh, for... John Redmond, Joseph Devlin and others to resolve the control of the Irish Volunteers. There's that split within the Irish National Volunteers and the Irish Volunteers. Irish National Volunteers about 160,000. Irish Volunteers about 10,000. And it's that smaller splinter group that ends up being the radical element that's involved in the Easter Rising. So a lot of the meetings that are being held in August, September and indeed into early October are to make sure that the Irish Parliamentary Party controls the Irish National Volunteers. They're not actually recruiting meetings for the British Army. So there's a problem within the politics of all this uh, for Redmond. And some have said that the, the, the first step in the process of the collapse of the Irish Parliamentary Party is that Redmond can't bring the Irish National Volunteers with him entirely, that there is this fracture within the organisation. Um, so that then means that these recruiting meetings aren't really being held until November 1914. Um, after the peak of recruiting has been reached elsewhere in the UK. So that leads to, to problems. In terms of how they're organised, we get three recruiting meetings in uh, West Belfast that seem to be very much down to Joe Devlin, the MP for the area. So these are not centrally organised by Irish National Volunteer Headquarters in Dublin. They're, they're, they're local uh, endeavours. Um, the other ones are, are even more interesting. Up in um, Derry City, it's a chap called C.J. McManus who starts recruiting. He had been commander of one of the battalions of the Irish National Volunteers up there. And he uh, turns up and seems to have recruited uh, about uh, 200 men as an off in November. He later claims to have recruited 900 in total from the Irish National Volunteers there. Um, and his file is fascinating at the uh, National Archives over in Kew in that he had been um, a private soldier in the Brigade of Guards. He was working as an insurance agent before the outbreak of the war and is basically recommissioned very hurriedly as a, as a captain uh, because he's brought these recruits in. Only later on do the work out this is the same CJ McManus who had been uh, you know promoted to corporal and broken back to the ranks about 12 times uh, because he seemed to be hitting the booze on a regular level uh, when he was in the army um, and later on things don't work out terribly well in his army career he, he leaves the army as a captain um, after a, a court martial case um, but he certainly does a lot of recruiting up in the northwest later on also recruits in, in Belfast too so that's a sort of local initiative uh, with local Irish national volunteers. The other man we have is a chap called John Ray who uh, starts recruiting in Enniskillen and raises about 60 recruits for the British Army through the Irish National Volunteers there. His father was the Nationalist uh, Chairman of the County Council, so there's a sort of very firm political element there. And a lot of this seems to be to do with the fracturing of the Irish uh, Volunteers in that area, that this is to try and show that the Redmondites are supporting Redmond's war policy and that they, you know, some are prepared to go to the uh, extreme of enlisting in the, the British Army. 
the police inspector in Enniskillen says that, well, you know, these 60 men aren't really very impressive, but, you know, this is a start and it's worth encouraging and seeing what happens. The War Office, of course, which is behind all this in terms of recruiting, handles uh, the Enniskillen recruitment with all the sensitivity that Irish nationalism could expect from the War Office. And that they decided that, well, yes, this chap Ray had raised 60 men, so they should commission him as a captain. And then the obvious thing to do would be to pack him off to the King's African Rifles. So he ends up in uh, East Africa and uh, loses a leg uh, out there in the East African campaign. And then the file on him again is fascinating because he reappears in our story in 1939 when he turns up at the Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers Depot saying that he's prepared to be the recruiting officer there even though he's wounded and so on and uh, the army saying well we only want this to go to retired regular officers not this guy uh, can we get rid of him and then the governor of Northern Ireland gets brought in saying no uh, Ray is uh, a loyalist Catholic and very well respected president of the local Royal British Legion branch he will remain as the uh, recruiting officer in Enniskillen and they only get rid of him in 1941 when they close the Enniskillen recruiting depot and move everything up to Oma so uh, someone whose um, belief of a sort of nationalist cause within the British Empire wasn't even dented by his own pretty miserable treatment uh, in the First World War. Um, it's also a little odd, I should say, where these men end up. Um, they're enlisting in Ulster, but they don't go into Ulster regiments. They go into either the 6th Royal Irish Regiment, the one that Willie Redmond serves as a major in, or they go into the 6th Connaught Rangers. Um, so this seems to have been against fears that the Royal Irish Rifles, Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers, Royal Irish Fusiliers were all identified with the Ulster Division and a concern that nationalists were going to be shoved into the Ulster Division whether they liked it or not. Um, and of course makes things very difficult for some of the later formed elements of the 16th Irish Division, particularly the uh, 7th and 8th Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers who are then left without a corridor. You would have thought the obvious thing to do would have been to have packed Ray and his 60 men off to the that battalion and use that as a base to recruit from but the, the war office doesn't uh, work things that way so I'm not trying to run down the numbers here. The, the best estimate that the British government puts together is that the Irish National Volunteers provide something like 32,000 recruits to the British Army. So you know, I'm, I'm by no means saying that nationalists do not enlist in the British Army. What I'm saying is that they don't enlist in formed units in the way, or formed groups rather, in the way that happens with the Ulster Volunteer Force, and that the 16th Irish Division ends up really with one of their brigades, the 47th Brigade, the first one that's raised, which uh, can be linked to the Irish National Volunteers. The other two brigades don't really have that very firm link and end up with a lot of fairly apolitical recruits uh, from the start. This process had, of course, moved on even further by the time we got to June 1917. By the time of the Battle of Messine, um, both the 16th Irish Division and the 36th Ulster Division had received a lot of drafts from England. Um, there, there's a number of uh, men who write about being London Territorials who are drafted into the Ulster Division and say they don't get much of a time off it. You know, they're treated as conscripts, but they're not. They're volunteers, uh, but they, they don't really get a great reception there. Um, and also, by June 1917, the 16th Irish Division had two regular battalions moved into it, the 2nd Royal Irish Regiment and the 2nd Royal Dublin Fusiliers, largely because the recruits weren't coming in in Ireland and there was a need then to uh, bring that division back up to strength. And what you're getting there is the old sort of professional carter which saw itself as non-political with what are thought about generally as sort of apolitical recruits um, you know, there, there is a debate there about how politicised uh, men thought that they were uh, of course most of these men wouldn't have the vote at this time that doesn't come to 1918 so there are questions about that but certainly the 16th Irish Division by the time of the Battle of Messines, certainly in 1817, arguably even from its formation, doesn't reflect Irish nationalism in arms in a way that the Ulster Division reflects Ulster Unionism uh, in arms. So that's uh, a major myth to think of uh, there in terms of the political equivalence of these two divisions and how we, we can match that up. Um, another one to think about to do with the idea of the, the sort of peace myth uh, that we've got is how these men actually got on together in the, at the front. Um, 
the idea that we get to do with the peace tower and peace pledge and all this sort of thing is that these men from the 16th Irish Division and 36th Ulster Division are getting on uh, very well together at the front. And indeed, I always thought it was rather odd that you would get some would push this line who would also be enthusiastic supporters of the European Union, who then seemed to think that, well, it was all right that Irishmen were getting on so well together in Belgium and France, even though they were there to kill Germans. You know, that seemed a rather odd view of how a peace process uh, could work. But actually, there are problems with that assumption that men did actually get to know each other well on the Western Front. The opportunities for men of the 16th Irish and 36th Ulster Divisions to mix were actually a lot more limited than anyone allowed. Certainly by the time of the Battle of Messina, you have the two divisions in the line together, and that pretty much continues up until the, the German Spring Offensive in 1918. It hadn't been the case of the Battle of the Somme, of course, where they served in different sectors of the, the front line. But that didn't actually mean that they mixed very much, because they were going back to divisional, different divisional rest areas, different bars, different you know, baths, cinemas concert troops, all that sort of thing. Very little sense that the men in the ranks got to mix. Where officers got to mix, um, there were some accounts that you know, officers of the Ulster Division would have some officers from the 16th Irish Division over to dinner and vice versa. But the sort of thing you get is, well, you know, we had Willie Redmond over uh, to a, an Ulster Division dinner. You know, seemed a very nice chap. Uh, you know, bon vivant, raconteur, all that sort of thing. But no suggestion that he was really winning anybody over uh, with his views on home rule. So I think we, we have to be careful about that uh, idea. Actually, amongst the ranks, there are a couple of good examples of where things really didn't uh, work out terribly well. There is a good account by Lieutenant Colonel Fielding, who's an Englishman brought in to command the 6th Connaught Rangers, part of the 16th Irish Division. And he recounts uh, a football match between the two divisions and said, a wag on the Ulster side was heard to say, I wonder if we shall get into trouble for fraternising with the enemy. So no great sense that this was a you know, meeting of minds there. And Dennis Rice, um, who's again showing that innate sensitivity of the war office in dealing with Irish nationalism, he's a South African who was brought in to command a battalion in the 16th Irish Division, the 7th Royal Irish Rifles. He um, had this wonderful story where he said that uh, the 16th Irish Division officers' mess had run out of soda water for their whiskey. You know, obviously, this was a critical situation uh, on the Western Front and sent over to the Ulster Division mess to get some brought over. And when the bottles arrived, they were boiling water. So this had obviously been sent to really offend the officers in the 16th Division. And you know, it turned out you know, a couple of the officers had to go and explain, no, this was the boiling aerated water uh, works in Belfast. There was no political symbolism to this. It was the only soda water they had. Uh, but you know, it shows you if an incident like that risked a rat, it suggests that things were not going uh, terribly well. There are also a few examples you get. Um, there's a Lieutenant Witherow who's in the 8th Royal Irish Rifles who's out on a trench patrol in no man's land, strays into the 16th Divisional Area and is put under arrest. And it takes Captain Stephen Gwynn, uh, MP, serving in the Irish Division to get him released. So, you know, not a great sense that things were really uh, going terribly well there. I'll turn now to say a bit about Willie Redmond uh, himself. I've touched on him a little in terms of his uh, book, Trench Letters from uh, France. Um, it's a very interesting case for those of you that have been out to the Western Front um, because we end up with... Sorry, wrong slide. Um... We end up with Redmond in what's talked about as a, as a lonely grave. It's up at Locker Cemetery. I don't know if, if many of you have got there or not. I got there for the first time uh, earlier this year, actually, with uh, my colleague Mark Connolly managing the maps. I'd, I'd never managed to find it uh, before that. Um, but it, it does sit uh, quite close to Locker Cemetery, L-O-C-R-E, or Locker, L-O-K-E-R, in Flemish now. Um, and there's a whole saga about this, which I'll, I'll cover in a little uh, detail for you. The papers on it are all in the Commonwealth War Graves uh, headquarters, who are now developing their archive and opening them uh, to the public. So if you want to, to, to follow the whole story there, it's actually quite well covered in Terence Denman's book uh, um, about Denman, uh, The Lonely Grave, where he got to look at the Commonwealth War Graves papers but doesn't reference them. Uh, properly, um, but there's a lot of interesting things uh, in there. If we're thinking of Redmond, then we get the journalism, we get the book, we get the push that 
Irishmen would come together in the trenches. But there's a bit of a problem with that as a myth too, in that it tends to see Willie Redmond as a great conciliator. And there's not a great deal of evidence of that. The same myth we get for his uh, older brother John Redmond as leader of the IPP, where he's often portrayed as a sort of proto-John Hume figure, somebody that was sort of there to bring people together and didn't really care if his own party lost votes in the back of it. Um, Redmond is quite unusual then. He seemed to be on the extreme side of the Irish Parliamentary Party. There are a few accounts of essentially fisticuffs with us unionist MPs in the House of Commons, so you're not seen as a terribly moderate figure that way. Um, but he does have a background that means that he can get commissioned in the army. He had served in the Wexford Militia very briefly back in the 1880s, and on the back of that, he was able to uh, get commissioned uh, from the author, a rather awkward business where a number of Irish Parliamentary Party MPs who want to go into the British Army are told they're going to have to serve as officer cadets. Now, whether they're told, yes, you know, nominally you'll have to serve as an officer cadet, but you will become an officer, or whether they are actually put through that the training mill is a little unclear. But uh, Willie Redmond is, is commissioned straight off and initially as a captain and then promoted up to a major. Um, if we're thinking about his vision, I have... Um, a reference here which is when he speaks to Captain W.T. Collier shortly after the Battle of the Somme he talks about things in more detail he says I do want to see in United Ireland as you know there's a big gulf between South and North between Catholic and Protestant Catholic as I am I want that gulf to be bridged over and I believe it can be I've worked for it all my life out here is a golden opportunity. Here we have two whole divisions, the 16th Irish Division representing the Catholic and the 36th Ulster Division. At present, these two divisions are kept severely apart on the traditional assumption that they would fight each other like wildcats if they came into contact. While I am exerting the utmost political pressure to bring them together because I believe they would do no such thing if they are fighting side by side against a common foe. It would be the first step towards the ideal. Uh, and then goes on to say that this would be, you know, shaking hands with the Ulster Mill and County Corps come together with Ulster and so on. So that gives you an idea of the, the vision there. Um, when he's commissioned, Redmond is posted to the 6th Royal Irish Regiment, which actually brings in a lot of recruits from uh, the Derry City Irish National Volunteers. So there is a, an Ulster link there. Um, but... For most of the time, Redmond is uh, carrying out a, an ill-defined staff job, as Denman puts it. Redmond is in his early 50s when the war breaks out, and that's pretty elderly for a company commander. So it seems that a lot of his time is spent over at headquarters, basically um, dealing with food supplies. And then after the Easter Rising, it seems that he's particularly put in charge of morale issues to try and keep an eye on things there and try and boil it up. And I always think somebody to feel a bit sorry for in this context is Lieutenant Colonel Edmund Roach Kelly, who is the commanding officer of the 6th Royal Irish Regiment at the time of the scene. And he's confronted by Willie Redmond, 30 years his senior, coming to him to ask, can he be permitted to take part in the attack with his own battalion? And it's a bit hard to say no uh, to uh, somebody old enough to be your dad, who's also the brother of the Irish Parliamentary Party leader. So Redmond is allowed to take part in the attack. Um, originally the idea is that he's only meant to take uh, part with one of the reserve waves, I think it's the third wave he's meant to go over the top with and that once the uh, battalion has reached their first, the first German line he's meant to get back to headquarters so you know, he can say that he's taken part in it but he's not uh, meant to get himself into any danger. Supposedly this is because Willie Redmond had received lots of letters from people in Ireland and there's no archive of his I should say that survives but suppose he'd received lots of letters that had accused him of cardinus, had said that he'd encouraged all these men to enlist in the army, but then he had got himself a nice comfy staff job behind the lines and he wasn't in any danger. So it's partly to counteract that, that he insists in uh, taking part. So the uh, battalion, the 6th Royal Irish Regiment, goes over the top at 3.10am on the 7th of June. By 3.30am, Redmond had already been wounded by shrapnel. His men actually carried on with their attack because they didn't think he was that badly wounded. And he's then found by uh, Private John Meakin from the 11th Royal Inskin Fusiliers. And you have the graphic novel there that uh, allows you to follow that uh, case there. And this again can be used as a sort of... Uh, 
uh, piece process bidding that we've got uh, make from the 11th Royal Liskill and Fusiliers. Um, seen as a convinced unionist, I think described in some accounts as an orange man, though I'm not actually sure about that. Um, and Meek is the man who then finds uh, Redmond, alerts a stretcher bearer party from the Ulster Division about him, and Redmond is then brought back to uh, the Ulster Division's clearing station. The whole business of the, the burial then is, is rather odd. Uh, Redmond himself dies um, the night, I think, of the 7th, 8th. Um, largely one of the surgeons says because of loss of blood that it's, um, they think it's basically shock and say that if it had been a younger man, he would probably have pulled through that uh, the loss of blood, the shock, uh, is what does for him. Uh, and of course, some did say that, you know, Willie Redmond was a man who was a... Uh, uh, a bon vivore as well as a raconteur and that he'd lived well so this had all uh, sort of come together uh, when he was wounded um, he speaks to an Anglican chaplain asking him to write to his wife but he dies soon after that uh, with the 108th Field Ambulance um, and he's unlucky really in that because in his battalion there had, well, we'll not say only, but there had been three other officers that had been killed. So compared to what happened in the Somme, the chances of pulling through as an officer uh, at Messine were pretty good. Um, we then have the situation where late on the 7th of June, an ambulance from the 16th Irish Division collects Redmond's body, brings him back to uh, Locker, which is where the 16th Division had their officers' mess established. The headquarters' mess was there, so the idea was that this was a, uh, a link to where the division had been based. And also the convent that it was connected to. Uh, Willie Redmond's niece had been a nun there before the war, so there is a, a quite a good sort of family link uh, with that area. So the divisional general, W.B. Hickey, uh, manages to get a coffin, very unusual thing to find in the Western Front, uh, for Redmond. Uh, one thought is that Fielding, who was the commanding officer of the 6th Connaught Rangers, had had a premonition that he was going to be killed and had made preparations. Uh, and that that's why there's a coffin available, uh, because, as you know, most of the other soldiers don't get buried in coffins, it's simply ground sheets. Um, so he then gets buried in what then is the uh, garden of the convent uh, at Locker. And quite interesting, if you're over at uh, Ape at the Flanders Fields Museum, you can visit their archive and they actually have the visitor's book uh, for the, the grave, which makes for interesting reading because you get a lot of visitors during the war from the Irish regiments, but also from Dominion units, a lot of interest from Australian soldiers particularly and going to visit the grave. So it, it's a, you know, a very, very um, instant memorial that draws a lot of people in from uh, very early on. And when the body's buried, there's a volley fired over the coffin with a guard of honour drawn from the 2nd Royal Irish Regiment and from the 10th Royal and Skilling Fusiliers, so one battalion from the 16th Division, one from the 36th Ulster Division. Um, Willie Redmond's wife, then Eleanor, she's happy with these arrangements and she visits the grave in October 1919. She gets a special pass uh, to go out because those of you that have visited the battlefields will be conscious of what the situation's like. Uh, in October 1919, farmers are starting to come back, but this still looks like, uh, you know, cemetery, charnel house, scrapyard, minefield, uh, all rolled into one. So there are very few visitors that early. But Eleanor gets a pass to go out and visits the grave. And this seems to have been engineered very carefully by Fabian Ware, who was the head of the Imperial War Graves Commission, because he wanted the body to be brought within Locker Cemetery and thought that if Eleanor got to see the situation, she would be happy for the body to be moved. But um, she's not happy with the situation and the idea of moving things and says that she's perfectly happy with her husband's body being left in good care of the nuns. William Archer Redmond MP, who is uh, Willie Redmond's uh, nephew and had also served as an officer in the war uh, with the Irish Guards, he wanted the body left where it was or said that it should be returned to Wexford for burial. And of course, that's another big problem for the Imperial War Graves Commission because the agreement was that bodies would all be buried in situ on the Western Front, that they wouldn't be repatriated in the way that the uh, Americans and uh, I think French did it too. Um, 
The Belgian Minister of War also gets involved and approves the individual grave because this was another sort of legal sticking point that in Belgium bodies weren't meant to be buried in private property. It was only meant to be in approved uh, cemeteries. And then Eleanor herself pays for the cross uh, that's there now. And of course this is another big difference for British soldiers in the Western Front that... Um, when you go around the uh, cemeteries there, you don't have the cross as a symbol. It's the, the grave, the headstone that then means that you don't spot the difference between different faiths uh, as they're buried. The idea is everyone is, is treated equally. So this is unusual with both that and then, of course, the, the wayside shrine uh, erected behind it too. So the situation then doesn't really change much for many years, but in 1956, the grave was visited by the Royal Ulster Rifles Association, and they wrote to the Irish Independent newspaper saying that the grave was almost lost in long grass and brushwood and was being neglected. 1958 then, the nuns left uh, what was by that stage a hospice, and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission started to maintain the grass path to the grave, so that there, there were sort of problems coming up there. And then in 1967, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, after a great deal of difficulty, tracked down two grand nephews of Redmond. And I think that's a terribly interesting comment on the decline of the Irish Parliamentary Party, that 50 years after Willie Redmond's death, people weren't sure who was left of the Redmonds. And they weren't, one of them was actually in Australia, one of the, the grand nephews. Um, they agreed that the body should be moved into the Locker Cemetery. Uh, the nephews, signed, the grand nephews, signed that off, and that's the legal position as it stands now. The Commonwealth War Graves says that if they wanted to, they have the legal permission to move the body. But at this point, the big kick-up was actually by the local parish priest in Locker, an 83-year-old uh, parish priest who got the bit between the teeth and said that the people of Locker would, had looked after the grave and would continue to look after the grave and didn't want it to be relocated. And then in Ireland, the opinion was, was rather divided. Um, the chairman of the Royal Irish Regiment's Old Comrades Association wrote to the Irish Times and he said, Redmond's life was devoted to the unification of his people. Why should he now be separated from his comrades who fought with him to achieve this? So it was obviously very supportive of the idea of moving the grave. Dennis Gwynne, who was the biographer of John Redmond, called for what he called an Irish response. And Brigadier General Dorman O'Gan, uh, Linus O'Gan, who had been Chief of Staff to Auchinleck in the Desert, Desert Campaign before embracing Irish Republicanism, opposed uh, moving Redmond's body. So there was a bit of a, a sort of public backlash both in Belgium and in um, Ireland itself. And then in June 1967, to reinforce this, on the 50th anniversary of Redmond's death, there was a service at the grave attended by many Belgian uh, politicians, including a former Prime Minister, how many Belgian Prime Ministers can you name, and veterans of the 16th Irish Division. Um, and So that sort of reinforced the idea of leaving the grave where it was. And at that ceremony, the soldier song was so sung. So there was an attempt to make this a sort of recognised Irish government uh, tribute almost. So the uh, Redmond legacy is, is certainly an odd one. I think that in terms of myths, we shouldn't perhaps see Redmond as as much of a bridge builder as sometimes made out. And I think one of the reasons why the grave is so well known is it's one of the, I think perhaps only two, of a British soldier that is buried apart from uh, a plot or from a, from a wider cemetery. So uh, there are sort of different reasons for people to be interested in that. Um, in terms of the uh, myth of shared sacrifice and hands across the barricades, if we like, I'll turn now to say a bit about the, the Peace Tower at, at Messine. Um, of course, the more famous tower uh, that some of you will be all too familiar with is the Ulster Tower at the Teepfall in the Somme, which of course is one of the earliest British war memorials to be built on the Western Front. That's back as early as November 1921 that it's unveiled. So you know, that sits at, at, at odds with the Messine um, Tower, which is unveiled on the 11th of November 1998. It's modelled on uh, the 7th, 8th century Irish towers that you get. Glendalough, I suppose, is the best example of that. And it's 32 metres high, one metre for each Irish county. So there is perhaps a little more thought on the design than is originally apparent. 
It was an initiative of um, a couple of different groups, and I'm conscious I'm being recorded here, so we'll uh, play things a little carefully, shall we? Um, it's an initiative of Paddy Hart, who was the former Fine Gael TD for Donegal, and then Glenn Barr, who was a former UDA spokesman uh, up in Londonderry. Uh, Glenn Barr is often described in some literature as a trade unionist. It was a, a little different from being a, a trade union organiser. And the origins of all this seemed to have lain in a 1996 trip, which included leading Ulster loyalists, David Irvine, Glenn Barr being two of them, and the former Taoiseach, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald. Out of that came something called the Journey of Reconciliation Trust. If you Google that online, you won't find very much about it, which says something. Um, and there was a budget of £150,000 provided by the Irish government to build uh, the tower. This was then dedicated by a ceremony in November 1998 by uh, Queen Elizabeth II, President Mary McAleese, and King Albert II of the, the Belgians. So that can be said to lay the groundwork for later peace uh, process measures. Uh, Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth II's visit to uh, Dublin, meeting with Mark McGuinness and so on. Some have said that this lays the foundations uh, for that. And I was over at the, the National Archives in Kew giving a talk last year to do with the, the Easter Rising. And uh, <coughs> former President Mary McAleese was there and seemed to take it a little amiss when myself, Richard Grayson and a few others suggested that really this hadn't contributed an awful lot to the peace process. She obviously saw it as a very important part of her uh, legacy. But I think that this was quite an odd endeavour, and it's more obvious, I think, if we have a look at this uh, peace pledge. I'll, I'll come on to that uh, in a moment. Um, the peace pledge, sorry, I'll have to read it off that. Uh, there's part of this which has, yes, as Protestants and Catholics, we apologise for the terrible deeds we have done to each other and ask forgiveness. So, of course, many that visit there don't really think that they committed terrible acts against anybody else during the Troubles, and this doesn't really resonate with many. So what we have is a rather odd endeavour of the Irish government trying to reach out to Ulster loyalism. And I think there's very little in that that appeals to mainstream Ulster unionism, much less northern nationalism. So in terms of a sort of peace-building process, it's quite an odd um, endeavour there too. A cynic, and those of you who know me know that I'm nothing if not a cynic, would also note that this is an attempt to remobilise the dead in favour of a Northern Ireland peace process. And it's notable that the loyalist paramilitary parties um, couldn't mobilise too many of the Protestant living to support them. So this was an approach where uh, they looked to the past uh, for support. There are any number of problems, I think, with the site and with the, the towers that currently stands. The site, of course, is where the New Zealand division served. So it actually serves to give you a false sense of the location of Irish units. There's a question about what it's actually there for. Um, there's no museum. There's no cafe. And, of course, a cafe is a very important element of any uh, you know, museum or memorial these days. You know, there have to be the practicalities dealt with. There are no facilities at all, in fact, uh, at the Peace Tower. So if you turn up with your, uh, say, 25 undergraduate students who have uh, been making a bit of a pigs of themselves with Belgian lager the night before, um, you have to make a few detours before you get there. And, indeed, if it's a wet day and a battlefield tour, you don't actually have anywhere to stand in, really. It's a very small, enclosed uh, space. You can only get into the ground floor off it you can't uh, get up to the tower um, but even when you get into the ground floor all that you've got there is um Ireland's memorial records, or at least the volumes of it that haven't been stolen. Anytime I've been there, there's only been three of the volumes uh, of uh, 12 were done Ireland's memorial records. So you know, there, there is a problem in, in what you can actually do at the site. The building itself is impressive, I think, but that also comes at a cost. Many thought that the stonework there looked rather more impressive when it was Mongar Workhouse, what was meant to be a grade two listed building, uh, which was brought down overnight. Uh, to find the stonework for it, so problems there. I've said a bit about the, the politics already. Um, very odd, I think, how this peace process, or peace pledge rather, was used, resonated with few, and there were no other major speeches made by the heads of state on the unveiling, so that seemed to be an odd uh, sort of comment in the whole thing. And of course, things we could say were moving on, that when this was set up in 1998, there seemed to be an idea that you had to have some sort of other space 
where those from North and South could come together and commemorate uh, the Great War. By 2008, of course, we were finding uh, Tom Hartley's endeavours had led to the situation where you had a Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Belfast laying a wreath at the Cenotaph in Belfast. So that sort of peace process element on the home front moved ahead very quickly and perhaps rendered this uh, redundant rather quickly. And then, of course, there's the finance of all this. The Journey of Reconciliation Trust seems to be defunct. Um, they're involved in a new peace park process. And certainly it seems that a lot of the work that was done uh, in building the tower was carried out by youngsters on various youth training programme uh, activities in uh, Londonderry. And that, I think, is problematic too because one could say that training unemployed youngsters to build a 7th century Irish stone tower wasn't really the most useful thing they could do. You know, there's not a lot of demand for these things around the place now. Uh, and actually, it's not terribly well built if you have a look at it. Um, the photograph there isn't uh, clear enough to, to show you, but there's an awful lot of cement packed into it. The stone that's actually used doesn't fit together very neatly, so uh, in terms of building project, we could wonder a little bit about um, you know, the, the mechanics behind all that and what trades were actually being taught. And then, of course, this was becoming very run down very quickly. As early as May 1999, Jim Hunston, who was a school teacher from Surrey who had brought a group of his uh, pupils over, was writing to the Irish Independent, claiming that 95% of the trees were dead, the grass was knee-high, and the Book of Condolence was missing. He continued, On reflection, the occasion, by which he meant the dedication on the 11th of November 1998, was drowned in a sea of self-congratulatory claptrap and empty political rhetoric and hyperbole. So that was a pretty damning indictment on it. And uh, certainly any time I've been up at the tower, um, there's been nobody much else there. Um, you maybe notice another uh, car load, but uh, it doesn't seem to get that many visitors and is, is rather off the, the beaten track. I've talked unconscious for 15 minutes, so I'd say very little about the idea of the to other sort of wider British army myths. The British military incompetence myth is one that has been uh, very much overturned in the past 20 years. There is an idea that the British army was learning something about the um, First World War and you know, how to manage things and how to develop. And if we think a little bit about that in terms of what was going on by the time of the scenes compared to the time of the Somme, uh, there are a few very positive things we can look to. One of the major ones is that the, the casualty rates at Messine were much lower than at the Somme. Um, at Messine, the Ulster Division lost um, about 1,100 casualties as opposed to 5,500 at the Somme. So 20% uh, of the casualties of the Somme. For the 16th Irish Division, uh, we're looking again at about 1,000 men killed at Miss sorry, casualties at Messine, killed and wounded, not killed, as opposed to around four thousand three hundred at the Battle of the Somme. So you get a sense there that things are, are moving on. You know, this is not to say that only a thousand men or so were killed in each division uh, at Messine, but compared to the bloodbath that was seen at the Somme, then that, that's uh, progressing on. The problem of course if we're thinking about this learning curve idea is that the casualties at Passchendaele are are equivalent to the Somme. So things get worse again. Um, and the losses in the German Spring Offensive in March 1918 are also uh, very bad. So this idea of a learning process, learning method, is problematic. Um, Cyril Falls, writing about the Battle of Messines and his history of the 36th Ulster Division, said Messines was the first completely successful single operation on the British front. It shares with the action of Malmaison, fought four months later, the distinction of being the most perfect and successful example of the limited offensive. And if we're thinking of the, the differences between the Somme and Messines, that's a key one, that the area that's being um, captured is about two miles um, of an advance. That's the um, fold-out map from the Ulster Division um, history. This is two, four, that's 600 yards. So you can see if you put that together, we're looking at a fairly limited advance. So whereas at the Battle of the Somme, <coughs> the idea on the 1st of July had been for a breakthrough and sort of keep going until they got to Berlin. By this stage of the war, the idea is to uh, capture German lines, wreck defences, consolidate and then move on again. The idea of bait and hold, as it's sometimes called. And that's helped in any number of ways. There are a large number of mines 
that are used at Messine. Um, it's about a year's preparation and putting those together, 21, 19 of which go up uh, at the right time. There's very good staff work for the Battle of Messine. Plumer, uh, the commander of Second Army, and Tim Harrington, his chief of staff, are seen as an incredibly effective uh, team who uh, sort out all sorts of problems to do with logistics and are very much um, revered, it seems, by the men who serve under their command. Um, indeed, one other general said that if you had a sorry, if you had a division that had been badly battered, you put it in Second Army under Plumer and Har Harrington, and they were as happy as sand boys in a matter of weeks. They got a sense that these were commanders who really cared for them and looked out for them. So there's good staff work there. The artillery is much better as well. There's more of it and it's heavy. And they're also starting to work out aerial reconnaissance properly. So the headquarters of the 16th Irish and 36th Ulster Divisions are getting photographs each day of the six-day bombardment to show how things had got on. And they're able to say, right, this strong point needs to be retargeted. So there's very effective observation for, for the artillery. Um, you have some use of tanks, although the idea of the tank in the First World War as a war winner is something to uh, be a little wary of. One of them does help out a battalion of the Ulster Division, but it's said that a sergeant only manages to summon its aid by rapping on the side of it with a Mills hand grenade to make himself heard. There are no radio communications with tanks, so uh, you know, I don't think rapping of things with the grenades to be recommended, but that's one way of it. And another one to think about is the organisation of the British Army. You'd got the reorganisation of the platoon system so that you had rifle grenadier sections and you'd Lewis gun sections. So there's a lot more fire that could be brought on enemy strong points and in the advance of the two divisions it seems that a lot of these strong points were taken out with rifle grenades. Uh, once they got to the third and fourth line. So at the time of the Somme, they would have relied on artillery and have been desperately trying to get messages back to get the artillery up and to do something to help them. At the time of Messine, they were able to use the rifle grenades quite effectively, so there are important uh, changes there. Um, I've talked a lot longer than I'd hoped to, so I think I'll end there. Basically to say, I suppose, that uh, you know, a number of these myths are out there. Most of them have kernels of truth within it, but hopefully I've done something to explode some of them for you. And I'll very happily take any questions you have now. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>